17. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion, eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And I am going to pass off baby because I know um, that while I'm holding here, none of you hear a word that I say. <laughs> She's just way cuter than I am. So thank you, sweetheart. Um, and thanks for reading God's word today. Um, so we're going to be in Psalm chapter 17 this morning, um, and uh, I hope you will keep your Bibles open um, before we get to this fascinating chapter. And I know uh, at least if, if you were uh, paying attention a little bit when we read a psalm like this one, there are bound to be some questions that come with it. And I'm very, very excited to see again the wisdom of God's Word and how it informs how we talk with Him today. But before we do, I need to ask, um, I want to ask you, uh, are you enjoying going through the Psalms this summer? I, I love this book of the Bible. Um, again, it's, it's no coincidence that um, this book has been so cherished by God's people for centuries, for generations. Um, this book um, it was, it's no wonder that it was, it was sung by the early church uh, or quoted so often by Jesus Christ. This book has been near and dear to God's people for uh, longer than we've been alive. Um, it's it's uh, even before Jesus uh, came uh, and uh, lived, um, did his ministry and died and was raised. The, the Psalms were already loved. In fact, the Psalms in many ways pointed directly to him. But I'll tell you another reason that I love the Psalms. Um, we are in a day, I think we would say, in which Everybody is sorting one another into heroes and villains. And depending on who you're talking to, you may disagree on who the heroes are and who the villains are. And what I love about the book of Psalms is it, it re reveals just how similar we are to one another. You could say that the Psalms are very, in a sense, human. The Psalms give words to emotions and experiences that we all have felt and endured, whether it's joys or whether it's our own failures. I mean, can you hear yourself talking back to the Psalms when you're reading the Psalms, uh, saying things like, oh, amen, 
Come on, they've, they've experienced that too? Mm-hmm. I mean, can you feel yourself as you're reading these, empathizing with what it's saying? It's as if you yourself are speaking these words. In fact, it gets to a little bit, you know, I was asked recently, um, are, are you somebody who's okay with like amens in service? And I'm like, yes, I am. I'm one of the ones who's giving them out when I'm sitting in the, in the pew. So don't ever feel bad about that here in this church, particularly because we together are realizing that God's word isn't distant from us, that we can, we, can, we can identify with what it's like to suffer and to rejoice and to experience the things that the psalmist experiences. But at another, at another level, I think we can't identify with this particular psalm, at least in how the psalmist is speaking with God. We're going to see this uh, more clearly in a second, I think, but the closer we listen to how the writer deals with his suffering— particularly the kind of suffering that he does not deserve, I think the more we will see how different we are from the psalmist, the more we want to respond like he did. I want to see if we have the same experience. And Psalm 17 is a prayer that, uh, from someone who knows what it's like to see the worst kind of people have the best kind of lives and to protect them at all costs. It comes from somebody who has seen the kind of people who don't care who they step over or step upon to get what they want, including the psalmist. Perhaps you can relate. It's a psalm in which the uh, author David is crying out to God, not dispassionately, not not, uh, with uh, any sense of apathy, but crying out to the Lord, do you hear me, God? Do you see what's happening to me? It's someone who's desperate for God to show up. Today, I want us to look at Psalm 17 in three parts, but actually three assurances that David has, which allow him to make his appeal to God in desperate times and to still keep his head up. You ready to look at it? So the first, let's look at the first assurance that David has, and one of the ones that's the most confusing, depending on how you grew up. The first is, my conscience is clear. My conscience is clear clear. So when growing up, I w- uh, my family would take vacations to Oregon. Um, anybody been to the Pacific Northwest? It's beautiful. So that's what I grew up going to, um, and um, my, I took my wife there for our honeymoon, which was a bit foolish, because um, yeah, uh, if you could ask my wife later, she didn't exactly have uh, the same love for Oregon after we left it. She would tell you that it was cold, that it was cloudy, and she couldn't wear any of the cute dresses that she bought. Way to go, new husband. It's been 10 years, so we're working through it still. But this is, nonetheless, like, I love Oregon, and one of the things I love about Oregon is the tide pools. How many of you have ever seen a tide pool at the ocean? Okay, so where the tide recedes, and it leaves these little pools, and in these pools are different creatures. So you have starfish and barnacles and sea anemones. It was fascinating as a little kid to look at these things, and they don't respond quite like when you go to the zoo and you can touch these things. You don't touch the sea anemones in the tide pools. Um, And you also have to be careful about where you climb. And uh, there's the park rangers around would actually stop tourists often from climbing in areas that were more dangerous. These rocks were slippery, not only from the seawater, but from this thick layer of algae. Well, they uh, would, again, get these tourists down, including my dad, who was rebuked at least once to uh, stay off of the rocks, which he did. He got down until the park ranger moved on, and then my dad scrambled back up. Only this time when he scrambled back up, he lost his balance and tumbled over backwards, cutting himself up on the barnacles and sliming himself in this green goo. The uh, park ranger saw all of this, got her attention again, and you know what she said to my dad? I told you so. 
How many of you have ever wanted to tell somebody, or, ha- or perhaps you heard in the parking lot, I told you so? You know, we, how many of you have ever seen someone, you know, make a mess of their lives, and you're watching it happen, and then it finally all falls apart, and who do they get upset at? They get upset at the rest of the world, that nothing works out for them. You know, we're, we're actually not so different, though, are we? I think some of us, we, we flirt with the very things that God tells us to avoid, whether it's just to, you know, get a toe over the line, or we do a deep dive into it, When our lives blow up, it's God that we get mad at. Let me ask you, uh, if I was, so I drive a Honda CRV. Say if I pulled up to the gas station, I noticed the gas prices, and I noticed that diesel was a lot cheaper this week. So I grabbed that green handle, and I put some diesel into my engine. Should I be surprised when my engine blows up? No, I shouldn't. I'd be absolutely foolish. The, The thing is, is God has made the world so that it, the following his ways would lead straight to happiness, that it would lead straight to satisfaction, that it is the way the world is made to run. Sometimes we treat our lives like, like the person who puts diesel in the engine. We pass over God's will and ways for something more convenient and less costly. And then we get angry at God when things blow up, don't we? Now, God has given us infinite reasons to trust him, but the, really the fact comes down to, the, to it that he is creator and he gets to call the shots. He is the one who made it and knows best after all. That sounds actually very elementary, but it's worth saying over and over again. When God invites us to follow him in obedience, he is doing so because that is the, world, the, the way the world is made to work. Now, certainly, choosing God's ways, especially in a broken world, will cause you to lose some temporary gains. Am I right? You know, we, we often choosing God's will, especially in a broken world, it doesn't always wor- work out as it should. If things are often topsy-turvy, aren't they? The world sometimes sees the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, which we're But when David, as David puts it, you hold fast to God's ways and you avoid the ways of the wicked. Whether or not others agree with you, whether or not it's the predominant opinion, you are tapping into the way the world is supposed to work. You are putting gas in the car and not diesel. You are actually becoming more human and not less. So two diagnostic questions that we need to ask ourselves at this point. If you want the kind of assurance that David has, the kind of assurance that a clear conscience brings. The first is, am I even doing the right thing? Now, that being said, you know, this is, in times of uh, certainty and uncertainty and anxiety, it can be, well, we can get, you know, confident. Yes, of course, I want to do the right thing. I can follow God in obedience, but then it gets hard, doesn't it? The heat turns up on our lives, and when anxiety and loss occur, we're tempted to actually, at those points more than ever, to compromise, to doubt God that he actually knows best. And so one of the most important questions we could ask right in the midst of my suffering, right when life is hard, when so few things are clear, is to ask, am I still doing the right thing? It makes little sense, after all, to expect God's favor when I am openly or unconsciously disregarding him. Am I still doing the right thing? But this is, this leads, this it can't be the only question we ask. There's actually a second and really uh, perhaps even more important question. Do I really want to find out? 
Am I doing the right thing, and do I really want to find out? Tell you what, there are few things that our kids dislike more than cleaning their bedroom. Um, maybe, maybe you, uh, maybe if you're a kid, you can empathize, or um, maybe if you've had kids or grandkids, you can empathize with me. But usually, there's a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth, and our kids don't tend to like it either. We, uh, we, our, our kids. It's like you, know, you can know that our kids are like running around the house at 100 miles an hour. They can have tons of energy, and then the moment you ask them to clean up, it's as if like life gets sucked out of their bodies. They collapse onto the floor in a limp and, and a weeping mess, and uh, it's as if you asked them to cut off their right arm, right? Anybody been there? We, say I had a, say one of our kids, hypothetically, we asked to go clean their bedroom, and, uh, you know, for five minutes, we hear some banging around, followed by, Dad, I'm done! Maybe you're more cynical than I am, but perhaps I, I would answer back, um, are you sure you're done? Do you want me to come in there and tell you whether you're done? You know, we, uh, there's many self-righteous people who would answer the first question with uh, just a resounding, yes. Am I doing the right thing? Yes. Of course I am. In fact, you would do better to take notes. Yet I think many of us, if we're honest, we fear what it would mean for God to see us as we actually are. For God to pull back the curtain, not just on apparent behavior, but even our motives. Even many religious people whose lives seem put together have only cleaned themselves up because it's uh, convenient, because it offers some sort of self-protection. They've cleaned themselves up because it proves something to themselves, or perhaps to mom and dad, or perhaps to others, that they're doing okay, that they don't need checked in with. Compare this, though, to verse 3. What does David say? You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. What are we to do with this verse? Immediately, it just sounds enormously arrogant to answer back to God. If you searched me out, you wouldn't find anything to blame. Now, we need to know that David isn't claiming to be without sin. Other Psalms will tell us very apparently that David is very honest about his sin, his own brokenness. He's not saying that he's never been corrupt in his motives, his actions, or his words, but he is denying that he is guilty in this circumstance so far as he can see it. The suffering that he's facing immediately is not one that he's brought upon himself. Now, this might sound strange to us, But while the Bible freely admits that there is no one who seeks God, no one that truly does good or is perfect before his sight, there really is a category for innocent suffering in the Bible. There is a category for suffering, for abuse, for injustice and difficulty that you will face, that you, that you not, might, not just might face, you will face, that is not the direct consequence of anything that you have done kind of suffering that you did not bring upon yourself. David wants to prove that he did nothing to bring this suffering on. He actually believes that he is innocent in this circumstance, that his conscience is clear. He even invites, he's so confident, he invites God to examine him by night. Why is this significant? Well, think about what, uh, what night looks like for you. That's the time in which you're most vulnerable and sometimes at our ugliest, right? Uh, drooling, uh, snoring, uh, dead to the world. Maybe that's just me when I sleep. You're, you're most vulnerable when you're sleeping, and the thing is, is 
he is in asking God to try his heart and to test him, he, he's inviting God to, to, he's not keeping anything back. He's willing to have, for God to lift up um, the rug, to look behind any corner. He's willing for everything to be searched out. When he's inviting God to test him, importantly, he is willing to be proven wrong. He is willing to be proven wrong. Only the heart of true humility and sincerity can ask God to do this. He invites God to examine him when he couldn't cover himself up or rationalize himself out of it, and he is convinced that God will still find him innocent, but still he is willing to be proven wrong. When the heat turns up on our lives, when suffering hits, we need first to turn inward, to weigh our motives and actions seriously, and to ask, am I I really doing the right thing here? Am Am I doing this for God's glory? So far as God has revealed his will, am I obedient to that? Is this just self-protection? But then we need to turn to God and his word and to God's people and ask, I mean, do you agree with me? Get a second opinion when you're not sure of your own heart's motives, and not just from somebody who always agrees with you and defends your side, not someone who just always says, you are always right, girlfriend. Find someone who is willing to be honest with you and read God's word with humility, ready for God to prove you're wrong, making the same, albeit terrifying, request that David makes. Test me. Try me. Again, he doesn't want to dishonor God. He wants God to, if there is something that he's done, where he, if he's missed it at all, he wants God to dig it up and reveal it. Again, David isn't claiming perfection, not in the slightest, but his confidence in many ways, he, he knows he can call on God. He goes to God with such confidence because his conscience is clear. Let me give you a really practical Ill- implication of this. Do you know that Christians can mourn more freely than anyone else when suffering is unmerited? You rightly can get angry when the six-year-old is taken advantage of or indignant when another person's deception ruins your reputation, or mourn when an explosion in Beirut leaves thousands displaced. You can shout to God. You can argue with God, not in disrespect. You can even ugly cry before the Lord, asking for his rescue, assured that he sees your innocence, and he sees other innocent victims, even when no one else does. But, and this is really important, to read our Bibles holistically, there is an innocence that Christians can trust in that goes deeper than a kind of innocence that they have earned. There is an innocence Christians cling to and are more confident in when they cry out to God than one that they have found in themselves. After all, I think we would admit, much of the suffering that we receive brought upon our own heads, haven't we? And let's just be honest, much of the suffering we deserve to receive, we have not. If you think that every suffering you have faced is because you have done something to deserve it, you are wrong. But it also goes that if you think that no suffering you have faced is one that you have deserved, you are also wrong. We are a mixture of both victims and villains. We are 
experience the collateral, experiencing the collateral damage of a broken world, and we are aiding and abetting in its brokenness. It's the greatest confidence a Christian can look for is not the innocence that they have earned, but the innocence that they have received. Philippians 3, 9 through 10 tells us that Christians are now found in Jesus, bound up with him. Verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, Christians, because of Jesus, can hold their heads up regardless of their performance. Why? Because Jesus' reputation is now theirs. Because Jesus was entirely perfect, God surprisingly sees the Christian the same way. It means if you are a Christian, you don't have to rest in what other people think of you. You don't even need to rest upon what you think of yourself. It may be high, it may be low. Ultimately, your most stable rest is knowing that when God looks at you and he sees all of your ugliness and all of mine, he sees you in Christ. And when he sees you in Christ, he sees something beautiful, something wor- wor- uh, worthwhile, someone, someone he loves dearly because he has made you precious in him, not because of something you've earned or deserved, but because of his son, which has earned all things and absorbed you, who has brought you into himself, who has made you a part of his family. God's love is for you. Tying this together, you can experience the confidence a clear conscience brings when you do two things. First, follow God's way, knowing that he sees your integrity. Pursue an integrated life where your faith in God overflows into absolutely every part of your life, everything you are. God will not waste your obedience. But second, and this is even more important, repent when you don't. Immediately confess it to God, knowing that he has already searched you out and knows it. You're not shocking him. You're not surprising him. Take comfort that Jesus took God's wrath for you so that you would not. Rest in a clear conscience that you did not earn. We may find ourselves to be innocent like David in our circumstance. We may find that we are more fallen than we have expected. Regardless, we can hope in the one who makes our conscience clear. Second, confidence number two, I can trust who God is. I've already mentioned that there are some kinds of suffering that betray explanation. In fact, if I was to talk with you after service, I'm sure you could give me examples. The kind of suffering that comes to innocent people. In fact, I have grieved with many over these kinds of suffering and have told them more often than I would ever have cared to, to say, I have no idea why this has happened to you. Yet I have also seen that suffering particularly innocent suffering, has two kinds of general effects on us. You see, suffering never actually leaves us the same. Suffering either makes us softer or it makes us harder, just like heat can melt ice or harden an egg. It either, suffering either hardens our hearts, making us turn inward, cold, and resentful, or it softens our hearts, making us more humble, compassionate, and understanding. We probably can give examples of those for whom suffering has made them hard or made them soft, can't we? Suffering either makes us softer or harder, and 
I have found the determining factor between the two is not actually the intensity or the frequency of their suffering. The determining factor of whether or not they turn soft or hard is what they come to believe about God in their suffering. I want us to look at David's honesty first. Let's look again at what the author is facing in verse 10. What does he say about his enemies? They close their hearts in pity. The image is actually really gross, much grosser than this, Im- this, uh, this shows. This is uh, of, an, of a heart enclosed in fat. Okay, that's just like, talk to your doctor, that would not be a good thing. Okay, so, but the, the, the image is of a heart that's insulated, that it's unaffected for, by others, that's padded in its own comfort and prosperity, so much so that it can't even experience compassion anymore. The wicked care nothing for God or for others, according to this, pa- this passage. As Tim Keller, author and uh, church planter in New York, says that these are callous people who flout every law, cross every line, laugh at compassion, and do whatever it takes to be happy right now. You know, we have every right to fear, actually, this kind of person. Why? Because as Keller goes on, a self-absorbed life is always at the cost of others. Isn't that right? You experience that? The self-absorbed life is always at the cost of others. You might know what this feels like very tangibly, to see others who seem to have such an easy life, who have what you want so badly, a house, kids, money, a good family, success, intelligence, beauty, influence, humor, and the, they not only have these good things, they take them for granted, or it only fuels their arrogance. Some of us, though, don't just suffer uh, emotionally from the wicked. We suffer in more tangible, destructive ways. Perhaps you have faced a discrimination and prejudice from those who should be using their power for your good. Perhaps you have been abused emotionally and physically by those more powerful than you. Perhaps you've been slandered or stepped over for the sake of someone else's reputation or position. And still, we face an even greater enemy than any of these, that of sin and Satan, who want nothing more than our despair and our distraction from God. The author drives this home with two really powerful images, at least that I can uh, relate with, about what it feels like to live in this kind of life, a city under siege and of a lion on the prowl. David's enemies you see, are uh, pressing in around him. They're waiting for the kill, waiting for him to finally shrivel up or for the right moment to tear him to shreds. And in the meantime, it seems as if nothing is going to touch his enemies. That's why David is crying out to the Lord for rescue. Before looking at how David responded to his circumstances, though, I think we have to appreciate his honesty, especially when we compare it to our responses in suffering. I think I at least can identify three different kinds of responses. When we suffer, first, some of us bottle. We distract ourselves from seeing our predicament honestly. Instead of being desperate for rescue, utterly candid about what we are going through and our need for God to do something about it, we don't feel like we have permission. We trivialize our suffering or determined not to feel it, not to think about it. Sometimes we even convince ourselves that I must deserve this anyways. Second, some don't just bottle, they blast. They deal with cruelty by reciprocating cruelty. They want to make their enemy pay, and when they can't, 
They want you to be on their side with them. They want you to be angry too. But instead of directing their defense to God, they direct it at others, punishing others, and getting bitter at God himself, they blast. And still, third, some bargain, searching for whatever they can do just to stop the suffering, just to feel okay once again. They make deals with God or with others just to ensure that this is, this is the, the, the pain will stop or that this will never, something like this, ever happen again. Instead of expecting that God can vindicate and only he can vindicate, they are convinced that their reputation and security really is in their own hands. They have to do something. They have to manufacture their experience, their circumstances, so they can protect themselves. After all, they functionally believe whether they say it or not, God helps those who help themselves. Bottle, blasting, bargaining. How often do these characterize you and how you respond to your suffering? This is where David's attitude is is just very strange. This gets to David's hope. David doesn't respond in any of these ways. He doesn't gloss over his suffering, and he doesn't sweep it under the carpet with trite cliches. He doesn't pretend as if it's small, ignorable, insignificant. He knows he's in trouble, and he knows that God, he needs God's help now. He, he, needs God to know it and to show up, not just in, in glory by and by. He needs the attention and rescue today. This isn't a whimper. This is a, a kind of scream to the heavens, God, help me. Have you ever uh, had a child fall hard and, uh, and heard the cry that comes afterwards? I'm not talking the kind of cry where like, I mean, I kind of hurt myself, but more I'm milking this for attention. I'm talking like the kind of cry where it falls and it's like, I I'm hurt, and I don't know that I'll ever be okay. That kind of cry that gets your adrenaline pumping, you jump into action. This is what allows David to be so desperately desperate is because he knows what is true about his God. I love how the ESV translates verse 7. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. In other words, David can expect rescue because this is what God does. He rescues, particularly those who depend upon him to do so. He has made, God has made himself a God of steadfast love to them. In fact, he has made them dear to him, even when they have very little to make them attractive or deserving. He has made them the apple of his eye, the people who should not expect that kind of love he has given it to. He has hid them in the shadow of his wings. Again, let me go back to these illustrations. What would you do if someone tried to poke you in the eyeball? You'd swat them away. You might be argue back, what's wrong with you? Stay away from me. Or say that you went and you tried to, uh, to uh, sneak up like Bear grills on this uh, Middle Eastern uh, mountain-hardened vulture and tried to take away one of its young. That's not going to work out well for you. This is David's picture of God and God's love for his people. The problem is, and this gets back to whether suffering hardens or softens us, is many of us view God like the author views his enemies. We're just, we're waiting for God to punish us. We're waiting for God to squeeze us dry or tear us apart. But if you belong to God by faith in his Son, this could not be more wrong. If you're a Christian, God isn't waiting to punish you. So long as Jesus is worthy, he will be wholly committed to your joy, and he will secure that joy in ways that you would agree with 
if you knew what he does? Do you believe, Christian, that God is for you? You don't have to cower from God like a beaten dog. Now, God may not show up how or when we expect. That's where we get to some of the questions we've been asking along in the Psalms. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? But still, even as we ask those questions, we can expect that rescue is coming because rescue is what he does. He saves his own. Not because of what you deserve, importantly, but because of what he deserves. Let's go to Romans chapter 8, verse 33 and 34. We'll put on the screen. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? In other words, what could God possibly, uh, what more could God possibly do for you than he already has done? What could, what could possibly be revealed to him that he did not already know? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, I need, to, I need to press in here and make a clarifier. This doesn't, and I think some have claimed this promise that actually don't have assurance of it. This is the promise that is made to those who are bound up with Christ, who are united to him, who have put their faith in him alone, who have said his way is the best way. I want him as my savior and king. This is not just a universal promise for the human race. It is not, you cannot claim this kind of assurance that God will show up for your rescue if your faith is not in how he has rescued you in Christ himself. But still, number three, the story isn't over. Confidence number three, the story isn't over. Last night, um, I'm sorry, so many of these illustrations are about our family, it's just our world. We were driving back in the car um, and we had gone to uh, see some friends, and it was about an hour's drive back, and first of all, not fun to drive back in that rain last night. But before that, uh, it's getting real dark at this point, and my son, he pipes up all of a sudden, <laughs> shocking all of us in the back seat. We thought he was asleep already. Oh, hey, where did the uh, pink and purple go? My wife answers back, you mean the sunset, buddy? Yeah, where did the pink and purple go? Well, buddy, the sun is going away. It's, it's time for the dark to come. To which he, he sighed and actually began to cry in the back seat. I don't, I don't want the dark to come. I want the sunset to stay. For some reason, this struck me. I think some of us feel like my son. We fear the dark. We, we see it already encroaching on our lives. If only we could hold on to our safety and comfort. If we could hold on to the promise of a, set, a satisfied and stable, a, a successful life. A life I can rely on. And yet the reality is none of us can avoid suffering. You know, suffering might catch you by surprise. You might see it from a long way off. Regardless, we cannot keep suffering from encroaching on our lives. We can't even keep death from encroaching upon us any more than my son can keep the sun from setting. But that doesn't stop us from trying, does it? In fact, I fear that too many of us are wasting our lives trying to avoid suffering, trying to cling on to what, we, what once was or what we wish was. So verse 14 can actually appear a little bit confusing to us in this case. 
especially the lines about God filling the lives of the wicked with treasure and children. In other words, the very things they most want from life. After all, isn't this the kind of life that we want? A nice house, a better car, the family Christmas card, a spouse or some grandbabies, maybe the retirement finally where I can get to the stuff that I've been putting off for all my life. This describes a kind of life that is self-satisfied with enough leftovers to pass on to the future. Isn't this the kind of life that many of us are hoping for? Again, I, I fear, I fear that many of us are wasting our lives, setting our expectations far too short. We don't really want our lives to matter. All we want is the American dream. But notice the phrase in verse 14, whose portion is in this life. What this means is that those who seek all that the world has to offer, sometimes they find it. But it is never as satisfying as they thought. It passes sooner than they thought, and in the end, it is as good as it gets. What a waste. Their portion is in this life, and then they will lose it in the next. Friends, hear me warn you as strongly as I can. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your days, no matter how many days you have left, trying to avoid suffering or trying to chase abundance. God may give it to you, and I have to tell you, you won't like what comes with it. You ever heard that phrase, be careful what you wish for? As Jesus puts it in Matthew 16, Verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Do you want to find your, you spent your life seeking after a bunch of small things and missed out on the one great thing? Do you want to find that your portion really was in this life? Compare that to Christians like the Apostle Paul in looking again to Philippians Three, I quoted these verses. I want to back up a few verses to verse 7. But whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, listen to this, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that garbage, okay, as intense as you want to make that, in order that I may gain Christ. How can Paul bear, not just to say something like this, but then to go on and suffer the loss of all things? Because he knows what the psalmist knows. He knows what it is to behold God's face, to be satisfied with God's likeness. For where have we seen that face? Where have we seen that likeness? But in the face of Jesus Christ. And to find that it surpasses the richest gain that this life could offer. Paul can say with David, let them have their comforts and prosperity. I am gaining Christ. The hope of a Christian isn't merely the end of suffering or vengeance against their enemies, or even the end of death and violence itself. Their hope is to behold God, to see his incomparable beauty, and to receive his immeasurable love, to find in him the exact satisfaction you have been longing for your entire life, and to find that satisfaction unhindered, undiluted, forever. Christian, even when the night grows dark, you can know that eternal light 
is waiting at the horizon. No matter the sorrow, the story isn't over. You can suffer the loss of all things and still be gaining everything. Even if the wicked prosper now, the story isn't over. Even if the innocent face injustice, the story isn't over. Even if God seems that he will never show up, the story is not over. Your assurance is Christ who has defeated again already the enemies of sin and Satan, even death, and is preparing to deliver you over to God, your eternal portion and refuge. Jesus is your vindication in life as well as in the life to come. The story is not over. God will rescue. God will judge. You can bank your life on it. Do you really want to waste your life avoiding suffering and grasping at trinkets? Do you really want to have everything but God? Or are you willing, if this is what God would deem, to have nothing but God? Do you really want to find that your portion was in this life? Instead, Christian, again, you can face suffering with confidence. Again, for three reasons. Because you have received innocence from Christ. Because you have a faithful God who has proven himself. And because you have a certain and bright future regardless of what CNN says. Whether rescue comes in the morning or in a thousand mornings, rescue is coming. And until then, as you face suffering, argue respectfully with God. He invites you to talk to him, to cling to his character, to cling to his promises, to rehearse them back for your own sake, And to take comfort, again, most importantly, in his goodness, particularly in Jesus Christ, and expect God to show up for you. He might even today. He may not, but we need to expect that God rescues because he is a God who rescues. But more importantly, hope in this day again. When God, when you see God as he is, and when that God answers every wrong, Rescue is coming. Let others have their comfort and prosperity. Do not waste your life by having your portion here. Who knows what is coming with the dawn? Lord, um, I think all of us here are bearing um, a variety of sufferings variety of circumstances we would change. Some of them are small and irritating. Some of them are all we can think about. Some of them are privately held. We've told no one, and others, everyone around us, knows what we're enduring. Lord, we rest in the fact that no one knows them more than you. You are a God who rescues and redeems. God, you see... You see innocent suffering. And more than that, you, you take the guilty and you make them innocent. Lord, because the gospel is true, we know that we have a God who we can trust, even when he doesn't show up as we expect or when we expect. And we know that because the gospel is true, our future 
So long as it's before your face, which we know that it is, so long as we have you, we have everything. We can even endure the loss of all things. Lord, we, we want to be able to endure our circumstances that way, and we know that perhaps in our suffering is one of the clearest ways that we show off what it means to be a Christian, to hope in God, to put our trust in Him. Will we not waste our suffering by trying to get an exit? Lord, would you glorify yourself in our church and through our church, through the many saints and the burdens that they're bearing? Would you show off to the families and those that we know and love around us what it means to actually practically be humbled and full of joy by the cross of Jesus Christ? It's for his sake and in light of his love that we pray. Amen.